Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing Few people are as gentle, powerful, and inspirational as today's Spirit in Action guest. Oh, and he's really talented as a musician as well. David Lamott lives in North Carolina and had a radical redirection of his life about a decade ago, taking him to Australia and India as part of Rotary World Peace Fellowship, leaving behind two decades as a folk singer. One of the fruits of this shift is his book, World Changing 101, challenging the myth of powerlessness, and likely this is not what you think it is. There's so much more to David Lamott, and you can access a lot of it as he joins us now by phone from North Carolina. David, a very warm welcome to Spirit in Action. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. I've really been moved by both of the books that you sent me, White Flower and World Changing 101. They're inspirational, and they fit in very nicely. Just recently, I went to a nonviolence training. Having just read your books, I think it perfectly situated me for the nonviolence training in a bigger picture. Have you been into nonviolence a long time yourself? I have. It's something I've studied a lot when I was younger, and I've had the chance to practice it a bit as an adult. I believe in nonviolence in a broader sense and also more specifically in nonviolent resistance. I think it's such an important time to be having that conversation because I do think that it's largely misunderstood. People very often don't get that pacifism is different from passivism and that we, in fact, have to be active in order to be pacifist. That's part of the definition. This may be a bit pandering to the current news cycle, which I almost never do, but recently there's been this ridiculous, in in my view, controversy about those who've taken the knee during football games, right? Starts with Colin Kaepernick, and now going back and forth, the vitriol goes, it feels to me like it goes more in one direction than the other. Is taking the knee pacifism, nonviolent resistance, in your view? I do. I think it's symbolic nonviolent resistance. And I think they've chosen their symbolism quite beautifully. Basically, Colin Kaepernick moved from one posture of respect to a different posture of respect, tweaking his respect in order to call the nation, I think, to the ideals that it professes and to point to the fact that there's a significant gap between the ideals that we profess and the lived reality of people who live here. I think it's good to be reminded of that. And we all bring the tools that we bring to try to move the world in a better place. And his notoriety is a major tool he brings as a professional athlete. And he chose to put quite a lot on the line in order to make this statement because that felt like the path of integrity for him. And Eric Reed wrote quite powerfully about that in the Washington Post, who joined him in that protest in the earliest days of it. I think they've articulated their point really quite beautifully. 
They got input from a veteran who's a friend of theirs, an NFL alum, and he suggested that kneeling would be a very respectful way to make this point. So that was what they chose. I really admire the way they've gone about it. I had one thought myself, and I think someone else actually did this. The one thing that would have made it a little bit more criticism-proof or maybe hooked more people's hearts is to actually kneel both knees, as in praying, as we think of that. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, again, these things are best, and as you described in World Changing 101, when you do things in community, you can go the long distance. What do you think about community brainstorming that idea? Yeah, well, I think it's quite interesting because symbols, by their very nature, are open to interpretation, and people are going to interpret them differently, no matter how you do it. I've also heard criticism in the other direction that kneeling is a posture of submission, and there are some folks who've said, well, why not take a more powerful stance somehow? I think it's been interesting to watch exactly, as you say, the communities that are directly involved in this, most notably NFL teams, tweaking out their responses and trying on different things, you know, linking arms, kneeling together, some kneeling, others not kneeling, but linking arms and laying hands basically on the ones who are kneeling, kneeling before the anthem and then rising for the anthem. They're continuing to do this, but I think it's quite interesting. One of the challenges we really have in our dialogue as a nation these days, or multi-log, I guess, is that I think we are forgetting something about how dialogue works. And I think it works best when we ask each other, what do you mean by that? And then tell each other, here's what I think and here's what I mean, as opposed to telling each other, here's what you think, here's what you mean. (laughs) And I think there's been a great deal of that going on in this particular conversation because these guys have expressed themselves very clearly, precisely what they mean, and yet folks continue to offer different interpretations for what they're saying, and I, I think that's a little strange. This certainly goes in both directions. Uh, The comment I think about Donald Trump has denied there's any racism in his viewpoint about this, that it's really about respect for the flag. It's not about race. And other people are saying, no, this is racism. I tend to agree with those who criticize what motivates his actions. But that's, again, me telling him what he means versus what he's actually saying. Maybe. I don't know. I I try and look at myself as well to make sure I'm not part of the problem. Right. Well, there's something about the log in my own eye for sure. And I am, I've moved a little bit away from the thing we all have said many times about if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. I'm looking at my own life and realizing that I'm definitely part of the problem, and I hope that I'm also part of the solution, and I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I'm bringing my brokenness to the struggle, right? And so I guess the main thing I would say about this whole conversation, I think, is that the issue that these men are pointing to is a much greater issue than the way they are pointing to it. The fact of systemic racism in the United States, that needs to be where the conversation is. I feel like we're spending a bit too much time and energy on dissecting the particular protest. Honestly, I just can't think of a more respectful way that they could have come up with, not much more respectful anyway, perhaps that second me, to make this point. And I think their point is extremely valid. I'm grateful to them for for doing this. You know, I grew up Catholic, and one of the things that we always did, you know, you go up the aisle to go get in the pew. And of course, you genuflect one knee. I mean, all the Catholics should be saying, wow, that's a, a Catholic sign of respect that you're doing there. 
and I guess a lot of people are not seeing that as that, but once you've bought into an alternate view of the world, it's pretty hard to get our heads to turn. One of my favorite theologians, by the way, is Lenny Bruce, and his statement (laughs) that I really liked was, he says, we're all the same schmuck, and this idea that we're all part of the problem and all part of the solution. Yes, we're all the same schmuck, so I don't need to engage in pretensions or perfection or beating of my chest either. It's like we're all there. Yeah, and we've got a lot of work to do, and so I want to get about the work. But it's the nature of protest that it's always controversial. That's kind of the point. We're directing people's attention towards something that needs to be paid attention to. Well, let's talk, David, about how David Lamott got from being primarily a folk singer. And you took this long hiatus and you went over to Australia and to India. Talk a little bit about the journey that got you refocusing your life where it's on. Because when I had you as my guest for Song of the Soul, you talked about how you got into doing folk music. And you didn't really talk about that further trip that is, I'm not sure even what you call what you're doing right now. (laughs) I'm not either. If you come up for a good title, uh, let me know. You know, I've encountered some folks who have various names for what I'm doing right now. Uh, (laughs) Not all of whom I appreciate. But yeah, I, I guess what I'm doing right now, I'm sort of just being a freelance citizen and musician and trying to do some piece work as I feel called to it. You know, I grew up in the mid-80s in the Reagan administration. I was in my teen years, and that was the era of mutually assured destruction as an official government policy. I was amazed to read a few years ago that that term, mutually assured destruction, the MAD policy, actually came out of the RAND Corporation. It was a government term. It wasn't the protesters who came up with that. Their own acronym for this policy was MAD. (laughs) So I do think that it was a rather mad policy, and I'm really glad we've survived it so far. But I was looking at the world and thinking, wow, you know, I don't think these are the best ways to work through our disagreements. And I think these days, at any rate, as human beings, our go-to responses to conflict are either violence or litigation. And I was was actually speaking at a conference of mediators a few years ago and had a lawyer come a little bit heated come up to me afterwards and say, look, I just need to make a point here that the law is already alternative conflict resolution. Yeah. (laughs) It's a step better than violence. And that's really worth articulating. That's really true. I got passionate about mediation in college, and I studied that as basically my concentration. I went in with another plan entirely, but I came out really focused on mediation. I interned at the local community mediation center there in Harrisonburg, Virginia, where I went to James Madison University. And it kind of gave me a worldview. It sort of gave me a a lens to look at my life through. And, of course, every life has plenty of conflict in it. I have friends, and I'm married, and I have family, and, you know, there's conflict in, in all of our relationships. And we have to constantly wrestle with how best to deal with that, to navigate our conflicts. And mediation to me was so exciting in college because here's a teachable method that works better than our usual ways of doing things. It just simply works better. I mean, I say that with some empirical data to back it up. In terms of people's satisfaction rates coming out of mediation situations rather than litigation situations. And I've seen it in my own life more anecdotally as well, that there are better ways than the ways we generally go to. And so I kind of wanted to give my life to that, career-wise, to promoting better ways of doing conflict. And I also started playing music in college and got really excited about that. And people seemed to be responding really positively to what I was doing there. 
And that was also really exciting. So out of college, I had this really difficult decision to make of which of these paths to put in the middle of my life. And I didn't feel like at the time, and I still don't feel like at the time they were very compatible because mediation would require deep community engagement and geographic availability, whereas music requires you to be on the road. And so I chose music to give my life to for a while. And I always had my hand in some piecework on the side, but I put music in the middle for 18 years. And that took me around the world, fed my family for a long time, and ended up making 10 records and, and having a lot of adventures in the first 18 years of my career. And then I heard about this peace fellowship from Rotary International, actually from the Rotary Foundation, that sponsors 50 people worldwide from applicants to go and do a master's degree in peace studies. It's specifically targeting people who are mid-career, not people who are coming right out of college, who have a track record of having an impact already because they're making a really big investment. They want to make sure they're, they're making a good investment. So you have to have functionality in second language. You have to have three years of experience at least out in the world doing the work. And for me, the experience counted as the work I've been doing in Guatemala since 2004. As a musician, I was aware that telling stories, I had a chance to raise a little money and awareness about some things that mattered to me. And my wife and I had gone on our honeymoon to Guatemala and sort of accidentally founded a nonprofit, <laughs> which I basically supported with donations at my concerts for many, many years. Now we have a director and we have some other streams, but for many years I was supporting schools and libraries in Guatemala through donations at my concerts, and I had a little board and a little nonprofit and spent a lot of time in Guatemala. I think I've made 22 trips now. I'll be going again fairly soon. So that work in Guatemala was my major qualifier for the fellowship, and that took me to Australia to do this master's degree at the University of Queensland and then to India to do field work with some followers and compatriots of Gandhi and study how they approach things and the work they do. And so since then, I've been more and more engaged with that work, as well as returning to touring as a musician and finding some intersections between the two. Could you talk a little bit, David, about how, again, David Lamott, the famous, in a small sense, uh, folk singer, you know, <laughs> you've been doing it for 18 years, and all of a sudden you take this major detour. Is this just something you thought about? Is something your wife talking about? When I made the change to start Northern Spirit Radio back in 2005, I was having a clearness committee with my Quaker meeting, and that was part of the process, and a few other people outside of the clearness committee ended up having input as well. What was your process like to take this 90-degree turn? Mark, when I first heard about it, it, I had an almost mystical response to it, honestly. It just felt so abundantly clear to me that this was the next thing I needed to do. I got an email from a friend who had just finished the Masters in England. There are five Rotary Peace Centers around the world, and she had gone to the one in England, and I got this email, and I looked at it and thought, what? <laughs> that exists? That's a possibility? And it was just abundantly clear to me that I needed to go. Now, I am married, and we do have a son. We didn't when this possibility first came up. But I do have a family, and so I don't make those decisions by myself for sure. I went and talked with my wife about it, and she was extremely supportive of the idea. She got it that I felt called to this, that this wasn't just, hey, this would be a cool idea, but this felt like a deep sense of vocation. And so she was for it. And she's an adventurous woman to begin with. She graduated from college and uh, moved to Japan to teach English in a rural fishing village for two years right out of college. And so we actually moved to Australia when my son was 10 weeks old. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah, just to compound the adventure and then moved to India when he was a year old and we're living in a rural village in the middle of nowhere. We had a really rich, wonderful experience. You know, they have kids there too, so it worked out fine. So in your book, and again, we're speaking, folks, with David Lamott, who's author of a couple books. One of them is called World Changing 101, Challenging the Myth of Powerlessness. I'm sure a lot of people right now are feeling powerless. The quote that you have on the front, which I think is so appropriate, bears repeating, you are changing the world whether you like it or not. (laughs) So I think what the book asks, amongst other things, is where do you want to be changing the world? What's your calling? What's your leading? What are you clear about? There's so many topics, and people should just get the book and read it, but (laughs) we'll try and give you some of the points in the book so you can have some sense of why it's so compelling. Number one, you talk about the difference between hope and optimism. Why don't you say a few words about that and why you prefer the word hope as opposed to being optimistic? And of course, I'm not arguing for uh, right definitions. I'm just explaining in the front of the book, here are my definitions. So we have some hope of understanding each other. Here's what I mean when I use these words. Because I think we often assume that we all mean the same thing when we use especially really common words like hope and love and courage and change. You know, (laughs) like that doesn't actually mean the same thing to everybody. And so I think it's important to articulate what it means to us as individuals. For me, optimism is taking a look at the situation and thinking, you know, I think this is going to work out all right. I think it's going to be okay. It's a form of prediction or of prognostication. Whereas hope, for me, is about where you point your life, sometimes in spite of the odds rather than because of the odds. So those are very different things. One is passive and observational. The other is active. It's a choice. My favorite words around that that have really helped shape my understanding of that are from Václav Havel, the last president of Czechoslovakia and the first of the Czech Republic, who was a dissident and playwright and poet, as I'm sure you know, Mark, who became a head of state. It's very rare to have an (laughs) avant-garde artist become a head of state. But he was incredibly articulate, and he said, hope is not prognostication, it is an orientation of the spirit. And I think those words are really powerful because I think our narrative, our cultural narrative around hope, is that it is fundamentally naive to be hopeful, right? Like we sort of pat people on the head rather than patting them on the back when they talk about their hope for the world. You know, I think the cultural narrative says, yeah, sure, be hopeful while you're young. That's really cute and sweet and the world needs it. Awesome. And then you'll get older and you'll experience how hard and cruel the world is and some of that hope will wear off. That's a very thin reading of what hope means. I mean, if that were true, then, well, let's think of our favorite hope mongers. How about Nelson Mandela? right? Was he hopeful because he didn't understand how cruel the world could be? Did he need that 28th year in prison? I don't buy it. I think he knew more about the cruelty and injustice of the world than I do, and than I hope I ever will. In spite of that, or because of that, he understood the capacity of people to make choices, and he saw the incredible courage and self-sacrifice and nobility that's also possible in human beings, sometimes in the same human beings, right? as well as our capacity for cruelty and self-centeredness and greed, etc. All that's true. All that's possible. So it's not a question of, is the world good or bad? Are people fundamentally good or bad? The question is, what pile am I going to add to today? You know, what am I going to do to move things in a better direction? Because I think the opposite of hope is despair. If we're hopeful, then we take action. 
that action may be effective or it may not. We don't necessarily know where it's going to lead. But if we despair, we are inactive. And when we are, are inactive, we know exactly where that leads. There's uh, something you mention in the book. You say, we equate cynicism with realism and hope with naivete. I think it's parallel with what you just said. And it's been one of my great frustrations. People who are cynical think they're so much better. It's like, oh, yeah, you're a foolish <laughs> optimist or something. And it's a fundamental cop-out. Yeah. I do have something that I call optimism. I'm wondering what you call it. For me, uh, one of my fundamental spiritual outlooks is about this essentially positive view of human nature. Not that I ignore the bad parts, right? But, you know, I grew up Catholic, original sin. Someone ate an apple, so therefore people have got to suffer for the rest of existence of humans unless they accept Jesus Christ, their personal Lord and Savior. Original sin versus the idea of Matthew Fox, original blessing, or the inner light, which we Quakers speak about so much, versus inner darkness, Satan-oriented, sin-oriented outlook on the world versus grace-oriented. I count you in the second of each of those pairings that you have the original blessing, inner light, grace-oriented outlook on the world. That's not just about hope, like where I'm pointing my life. It is something about a deep thing that I believe exists in the nub of reality. What do you call that? I don't know that I have a great word for it, but I certainly resonate with what you're saying, and you've got a pretty good handle on my theology there, I think. I've been thinking about recently this phrase, common phrase these days, it's all good. We've been saying that for about a decade, I guess, right? And I think in the reductionist kind of view of that phrase, it's a pretty silly thing to say because everything isn't good, right? But if you look at it from another angle, if you're saying that in the totality, all of the all, when you look at all that, it's good, <laughs> then I can buy that. Right. And that's kind of a good reminder That's regardless of how it's intended, that's how I've started to hear that phrase, to just be reminded that, you know, the big thing is beautiful. There's some ugly in there, but the big thing is soaked in beauty and in love. I think love is the animating force of the universe. So I, I like Matthew Fox's original blessing thing. I also I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're perfect in our imperfection, that we are broken in a certain sense. That doesn't mean broken that can't be fixed, but it means we're imperfect. And there's beauty in that too. And that's what we bring. Because I think so often we're trying to be perfect. And I don't think we need to try to do that. I think we can bring the beauty of our imperfection to the work of loving the people around us. We're going to talk more with David Lamott about his book, World Changing 101, and the many ways in which he is seeding the world with his good efforts. But first, I want to remind you that you are listening to Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, Northern Spirit radio.org with more than 12 years of our programs for free listening and download there's links to our guests so if you have any trouble spelling davidlamott.com we've got the link on nordenspiritradio.org you also find other links and information about our guests on our sites for instance pegpartners.org and letsbeneighbors.org which we'll mention later in this interview you'll find those links on nordenspiritradio.org there's for comments. Communication that's two-way is the best. That's why mediation is so important. You have to have all voices represented, all stakeholders represented. You can represent your part 
in this conversation very easily by posting a comment on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. There's a place to donate. Full-time work this is, and we can't do it without your support. Please click on Donate when you visit. More importantly, though, support your local media. It's so important to have voice for people working together at the local level, and your local community radio station provides that kind of voice. They provide source for music. They provide an opening for the spirit that we get nowhere else. So please start by supporting them. David Lamott is here for Spirit in Action today, author of World Changing 101. There's also another book called White Flower that he wrote, and it's illustrated by Jen Hales. We'll talk a little bit about that more in a moment. But World Changing 101 is where I want to be focused right now. When people see that name, by the way, World Changing 101, it's like, oh my goodness, that's too big. I can't carry that. (laughs) I got to figure out what I got to cook for lunch, right? And you have some kind of disclaimers or reorientation. You say what the book's about. Why don't you say that right now so people don't go at it with such fearful, trembling hands? Right. Well, the first thing I need to say about it is that it's easy to imagine that it means, here's a course in changing the world. I've got the answers. I'm going to give them to you and then you'll have them and we'll all be good. We'll go change the world. It'll be great. That's not at all what I mean. Of course, a 101 course in the United States means that that's a first year college course. It's an introductory course. And I don't want to speak in too broad of a generality, but I think in pretty general terms, a lot of my experience of the difference between high school and college was that in high school, they mostly asked me questions and gave me the answers and then asked me to give those answers back. And in college, they asked better questions. And my favorite professors were the ones who were courageous enough to ask questions they didn't have answers for, because these questions matter. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is offer some better questions, because I think as a culture, we are often asking the wrong questions. And if you're asking the wrong question, it doesn't really matter what answers you get. So that's really the goal of the book. And I think it's also worth noting in terms of the phrase changing the world, the smooshed together word, world changing, that's in the title there. We talk about that as though the world is something other and out there, and our own lives somehow aren't part of it. But the fact is, each moment of our lives is part of the world, and everywhere we are, and every relationship we have, that's part of the world. If you're changing that, you are changing the world. And part of where we get into trouble there is that we use these phrases, change the world, interchangeably with fix the world, and save the world. And the phrase change the world means something fundamentally different. If you think you can fix the world, that is naive, (laughs) right? Um, Guilty (laughs) as charged. If you think you can save the world, I would suggest that might not be your job. But if you think you can change the world, you're just paying attention because an incremental change is still a change, right? It's not naive to think you can change the world. It's naive to think you could possibly be in the world and not change it. Everything you do changes the world whether you like it or not. So the questions for us are, How much attention and intention are we going to bring to the changes we're making? What changes do we want to make, and how do we get started? You know, one of the phrases that jumped to my mind as you were talking, David, was what I learned as a Boy Scout. I was 14 or so when I joined a a troop. Do a good turn daily. That's world-changing, right? Sure it is. Do a good turn. I choose something each day. It's not saying I have to go change who's president of the United States or send a rocket into space. I just do a good turn daily, and then I've oriented myself towards hope. Right. I think there's deep truth in that, Mark. And 
I also think there probably are some folks hearing this who say, yeah, great, but we got really big problems, right? <laughs> like, how are you going to do that? And part of what I'm looking at in the book is the difference between various narratives of how things really do change on a large scale. And I think we have a deep cultural narrative about how large-scale change actually does happen that's actually erroneous, and it's really damaging to our capacity to make change. So our very first step, the one that I'm trying to address in the book, is to look at it differently, to understand differently what it means to be engaged and what's actually effective in terms of changing the world. And you talk about our hero worship versus what real people do and about flawed heroes. That's some of the subject matter. You talk a fair amount about the Montgomery bus boycott and how that came about. You know, people know Rosa Parks, and she's some kind of a hero who one day did something, but that's not the truth at all. No, it's really not. We mostly treat Rosa Parks as though her life was one day long. That's really unfair to the work that she did and the legacy that she left us. I think she is a heroic figure, but I think we need to think about what that means to be a, a hero. I think the way that we generally approach heroes is that we expect heroes to be the ones who fix things, right? And our job is to find the heroes or to clap for them when they do really good things, mostly just to clap. We wait. We have a really big problem. We know the problems are solved by heroes, and we're not heroes, so it's clearly not our job to solve the problem. So there must be a hero around here somewhere. They always show up in the nick of time in the movies. One's bound to show up, right? And we wait for someone to deal with it. The truth is, in my examination of history, I actually haven't found a single example, not one, of a hero addressing a large-scale problem in the absence of a movement and effectively fixing that problem or having a massive impact. It just doesn't happen. The function of a hero is to inspire the rest of us to get involved. And when a lot of us get involved, that's when real change happens. And that is exactly what happened with Rosa Parks' action. The local NAACP and, and others got right on board with this. Most importantly, the Women's Political Council, led by Joanne Robinson in Montgomery, they had had the boycott organized for over a year in advance by the time Rosa Parks took that action that particular day. Rosa Parks had been an activist for 20 years at that point. She had been the secretary of the local NAACP for 12 years by the time she was arrested that first time. She had been to the Highlander Center three months in advance of her arrest to go train in nonviolence and voter registration with Septima Clark and uh, Miles Horton and you know heroes of the movement like that who are lesser known than the folks who were on the headlines. So three months after being at Highlander, what a coincidence, she gets arrested on the bus. What a coincidence. Right, this did not come out of nowhere. And the movement work, the story we don't hear is about what Joanne Robinson did the night that Rosa Parks was arrested and what all the women of the Women's Political Council did in the 12 hours following. Rosa Parks was arrested, I believe, just before 6 p.m. on a Thursday night, and the word got around town through telephone trees and things like that that we don't have need of anymore because we can <laughs> just post it on Facebook. The word got to Joanne Robinson, who is the head of the Women's Political Council, which is an organization of women of color in Montgomery. She put in a phone call to Fred Gray, who is an African-American attorney. Mr. Gray was down at the courthouse with Mrs. Parks, and Mrs. Parks was in custody and he was working to help her deal with that. So when he got home at 11 p.m., he called Joanne Robinson back. Joanne Robinson said, Fred, I wanted to run this past you before I make the final decision, but I think I want to call the boycott for Monday. And Fred said, yeah, I think that's a good call. Let's do this. And so Joanne Robinson met two of her English students. She was a professor at Alabama State College. 
She met two of her students at midnight at the college and met the guy with the keys to the copy room. He unlocked the copy room. And from midnight to 4 a.m., Joanne Robinson and two of her students made copies, three up to a page, and then they cut them all until they had tens of thousands of copies calling for the boycott on Monday. From 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., they dropped them off at the homes of team captains around Montgomery in the African-American section of Montgomery. And these women then distributed them from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. So by 8 a.m., the morning after Rosa Parks was arrested, 14 hours after she was arrested, everybody in town in the African-American part of Montgomery had this flyer in their mailbox calling for the Monday boycott. Nobody's ever heard of Joanne Robinson, but she's the one who called the boycott. And the Women's Political Council is entirely responsible for riling this thing up. I shouldn't say entirely. That's an overstatement. But they did the seed work and the organizing work that made this possible. At 10 a.m. that morning, there was a previously scheduled meeting of African-American pastors who all walked in holding this flyer, right, because they all had it already. It had showed up at their house that morning. And they got together and said, yeah, okay, let's get in front of this. This is great. And they formed the Montgomery Improvement Association, and they elected a guy to head it up because he was new in town and hadn't been there long enough to have complicated political relationships with the other pastors in town. So they elected <laughs> Dr. King, and after some resistance, talked him into heading up the MIA, the Montgomery Improvement Association, that then led the organization of the boycott. I say all of that just to illustrate how we strip away facts from history until it fits the hero narrative, even though it's very clearly a movement story. And we do that because we really strongly prefer the hero narrative, because the hero narrative says it's not my job, right? I'm not a hero. It's heroes that fix things, so it's not my job. And the fact is, it's all of our jobs as human beings, as citizens of democracy. If we are that, it's part of our job as members of communities to help drive the communities in healthier directions. Yes, and that's a piece of history we absolutely need to hear. You can read more about that, folks, in David Lamott's book, World Changing 101, Challenging the Myth of Powerlessness. I want to talk some more about this hero fixation that we have and how much that really damages us. You talk in the book, David, about flawed heroes, how we all know that we're flawed, so therefore we can't proceed until we get something perfect. Uh, which is, I think, such a mistaken way of approaching the world. And you point this out, that we correctly can point to flaws of people, you know, whether Dr. King slept with other women, all the ways in which Gandhi was not perfect, right? And so therefore they're hypocrites and charlatans versus the perfect person on the pedestal. You know, George Washington has to be perfect in some way, whereas he was a person like the rest of us and flawed. I think you correctly state, and the point is very clear, we all could be a hero of some measure, and hero is not someone on a pedestal, but a hero is a, a mixed bag, just as we all are, and we could make a difference. Is there a point in which you decided that you could be on that pathway in spite of your flaws? And I, I'm obviously inviting you to expose all of your flaws on radio right now. <laughs> Great. That'll be awesome. I can't wait. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, I would rather let go of the goal of being a hero. I would rather all of us let go of that and recognize that heroes aren't nearly as important as movements are. What I want to do is be a part of a movement. I want to be nourishing the people around me and taking small steps in the right direction. That's what a movement is. It's a lot of people doing a little bit in the same direction. 
And maybe sometimes you're called to do something more dramatic or something like that, but the drama isn't the part that matters. Its only function is to inspire people to get involved. And I would argue that a lot of the time it does just the opposite. Doing something big and bold often makes people feel like, wow, I could never do that. You know, that's our natural response to a hero story a lot of the time. And so we clap for them. You're awesome. But we also unconsciously divide ourselves from them. It's a really interesting story that Dorothy Day was once interviewed by a young man who wanted to talk with her about her activism. Of course, Dorothy Day, one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, came to interview her and he said, Sister Day, I'm really excited to speak with you today because I've never had the opportunity to interview a saint before. (laughs) And she responded, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily, which is a really interesting response, right? If there are saints and the rest of us, if it's the saints that do good things, then we don't have to. We just pray to them and, you know, praise and worship. You know, we, we clap for them and we're good, right? And I think that was the worst case scenario for how people would interpret her work for her. She wanted everybody to step up. And if we categorize people in that way, then we stop measuring ourselves and we stop checking ourselves for, am I doing the part that's mine to do? Which brings us very clearly to the role of community. There's an African proverb you share in the book. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. One of our communities, which has been largely in decline for a number of years and more precipitously so, is what we call religious community. Some people have notions of what a religious community is and isn't that I don't think match reality. One of the things that could be negative on that side, and people, I think probably you and I both would agree, is often a negative factor there is, you know, you go and you pray, so therefore you don't have to do anything. I think you were just alluding to that. I think you go to Quaker meeting not because you're going to pray and the almighty white guy in the sky is going to solve all the problems. You go for a different reason. What's what's your purpose of being part of spiritual community? Well, it's partly inspiration and it's partly discernment. It's partly taking time. That silence in a Quaker meeting is pretty dangerous. You know, like we have to be fairly courageous to subject ourselves to it because all the stuff we've been running from has a tendency to catch up. And we have to sit with it and be present to our own lives and kind of zoom the lens out a little bit and see what's going on and also leave space for the spirit to move and to hear some nudges, some holy nudges. I find all that extremely powerful. I love that opportunity when I get it. The bummer for me is that I work a lot on weekends, so I miss my Quaker meeting quite a lot, but it is so deeply nourishing to me when I'm there. So community can have a positive effect, but we've seen community in decline. I think uh, materialism and corporations have actually replaced community. You know, people identify because they're all wearing the same jeans or driving the specific kind of car. I think there's a community around Prius owners, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> but labor unions have been in decline. Certainly churches are in decline. Do you see an increasing role of community in any way that particularly feeds the hopes that you have for the direction of the world? Well, I think we're living in a time where all forms of community are under assault, and also institutions in general are in decline. People don't trust institutions, and I think there's some sound reasons for that. At the same time, I do mourn the decline of communities of faith. Just for myself, I can hear arguments from folks who think, yeah, that's a great thing, actually. I I could understand how you'd come out to that conclusion as well, but it's not my own conclusion. 
But I do think that human beings are tribal by nature, and we are substituting forms of communication that tend to be a little more toxic, I think, and losing. I, I think it's a time where we have to be intentional about creating community because we need it as human beings. So when my wife and I got back from our five years traveling around in Australia and India and then foreign countries of Raleigh and Chapel Hill, <laughs> we decided that we were really missing seeing a group of friends often and just having some local community. And so my wife and I were talking about it. We said, let's just create that when we get home. Let's just make it happen. So how about if we say at our house every Wednesday night, y'all come, you can swing by. You know, any friends you want to come by, we'll order pizzas for however many people show up, bring the kids, they can run around, and we'll all throw a little money in the kitty for pizza, and it'll be low stress. We won't even do a potluck because then people won't come because they didn't have time to make the potato salad. Let's just order pizzas, you know, and, and have a few beers on the side there if folks want them and some non-alcoholic drinks and just come and be in community. And we're going to do that every week. And now for about five years, we've been doing that every week. And over the years, it's often come that other friends have offered to host or we had something come up or, you know, different things have happened over the years. But that group was over last night at our house. And it has been there when one of our friends that is part of that group was diagnosed with multiple myeloma a couple of years ago. We all rallied around. And right now, another friend is going through another kind of trauma and, and we're there and we get to celebrate each other's joys. And a bunch of us are going to go Sunday night and see a play that's put on by one of the members of that group. And that kind of community doesn't just happen anymore. Before all of our communications technology existed, it happened pretty naturally. You had to talk to your neighbors. You'd stop by to trade some milk for some eggs, and you did different things like that. You would run into your neighbors and know them. Now we have to actually be intentional about that. So for ourselves, that was one of our initiatives about five years ago, and I'm just so grateful for it. I was writing about it in my journal this morning, how grateful I am for that group of friends. And the kids pack up and, you know, they separate into age groups and entertain each other and we get to hang out and talk for a little while. It's just great. The other thing I did just last Christmas, especially in, right after the election, it just felt like everybody was scared of each other. Nobody wanted to talk and have a substantive conversation because we were afraid we might be the enemy, <laughs> right? And so <laughs> folks seemed scared to me, honestly, looking in my own neighborhood, just watching people walk down the sidewalk. And I wanted to be real clear about who I am and where I am with this. And so I had a sign made, and I put it on the front of my house, and it's, um, it's not a little sign. It's three feet by eight feet. Right at the top, it says, let's be neighbors. And it says, no matter who you vote for, no matter where you're from, no matter what language you speak, no matter who you love, we are going to try to be here for you. And that's what community means. Let's be neighbors. Folks started stopping by the house, honestly, to just talk. People we didn't know showed up at the front door. And I've been so grateful for that. It's been really interesting to make that statement. And I think it's important that it starts with no matter who you vote for, because that's one of the deepest divides we're facing right now. And it doesn't say no matter who you vote for, everything's cool, it's fine, don't worry about it, because that's not true. Like, we've got really hard things to talk through. But I'm convinced that people are transformed, including myself, are transformed in the context of relationship. We're seldom rejected into making better decisions, right? <laughs> and I just wanted my neighbors to know that if your car battery's dead and you need a jump, no matter who you voted for, you can knock on my door. I'm going to try to be your neighbor. And, and as we get to know each other better, we could sit down and talk about all this stuff and see if we can at least rehumanize each other, if not come to see things differently. 
And that's part of the way to World Changing 101. Again, folks, we're speaking with David Lamott. David, we're going to run out of time here far too soon. I want to cover in brief just a few of the ways in which you've been participating in world changing. Can you say a few more words about PEGpartners.org is the website about Guatemala? And I don't even know what PEG stands for. I've looked all over on your website trying to figure out what it's an abbreviation for. Oh, yeah. So PEG, we, we often call it PEG. PEG stands for Proyecto para las Escuelas Guatemaltecas, which means Guatemalan School Project. And that's why we call it PEG. Um, rather than pronouncing the title of the organization. Hey Partners is an organization that my wife and I founded in 2004 with the focus areas of literacy, critical thought, and artistic expression in Guatemala. This came out of our honeymoon. We Here's the fact, Mark. We're just kind of nerds, and we, the most fun thing we could think of to do on our honeymoon was to go to language immersion school. <laughs> so that's what we did for a couple of weeks in Antigua, Guatemala in 2004, and it was a joy, and we fell in love with the country, and we made some good friends that we are still in touch with. We also became aware of how public education works, or sometimes doesn't, in Guatemala, which is to say that if you can get together enough students, the government will pay for a teacher's salary for a school, but it pays for nothing else. It doesn't pay for the building, doesn't pay for textbooks, which is why there are no textbooks in many, many Guatemalan schools, no textbooks at all. It doesn't pay for the light bill, none of that. So education, especially for poor folk, is really a struggle. And I do believe that education is a really fundamental piece of all of the changes that my Guatemalan friends say they want to see in Guatemala, which is to say political changes, economic changes, and social changes as well, cultural changes like there's a big issue with domestic abuse in Guatemala. And so literacy and critical thought are a big piece of all of that. Later, we expanded into artistic expression as well because preserving indigenous cultural assets and also giving kids things to be excited about and a place to put their passion became increasingly important to friends we were working with there. And all of our work in Guatemala has been connecting with folks, Guatemalan folks who are already doing great work in Guatemala and supporting them. So we're not coming in with a plan saying, here's what you need to do. We're there in relationship with folks, listening to what they're passionate about, what gifts they're bringing, and seeing where we can intersect and do good work together. And it's been really a rich part of my life for some time. In October, we're going to have four young folks from Guatemala come up from a music school that we founded in 2007 with some Guatemalan friends there and with folks from the Lake Eden Arts Festival, the Leaf Festival in North Carolina here partnering with them. Now that school is just going like gangbusters, and the students are so incredibly talented that we've brought groups from Guatemala up to perform in the States at major music festivals like LEAF. (laughs) So that's really exciting, the things that are going on there right now. David, there's so many things that we've talked about that I can't include them all in the broadcast, so I want to let our listeners know that there will be bonus excerpts to this interview on northernspiritradio.org. Great stories, great bits of history, great bits of activism insight, all of that from David Lamott. That's going to be on the Northern Spirit Radio website. We're going to go out with your song, You May Do That, David. But I want to talk about the last section in World Changing 101. And again, folks, the full title, World Changing 101, Challenging the Myth of Powerlessness. You could look at David Lamott's book, White Flower, 
written by David and illustrated by Jen Hales. You can look at his website, PEG Partners, about his work that he's supported in Guatemala. You can go to letsbeneighbors.org. And we haven't even talked at all, David, today about Abraham Jam, which is all its own. There's a link on NortonSpiritRadio.org, some really wonderful, wonderful creativity that you're doing for World Changing. But the last section, World Changing 101, has to do with what is yours to do. I want you to say a few words of that, and we're going to go right into You May Do That, because that's really what it's all about. The last section of the World Changing 101 book just has a few questions that I ask myself when I'm feeling what I think of as kind of a holy restlessness that's telling me that I need to get engaged in a way that I'm not engaged. So I try to figure out what is mine to do and what isn't. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that nobody else can tell you what's yours to do. You really do have to discern that yourself. And we all can't do all of it. So this section is called Pick One, and it has to do with picking one thing that's really on your heart right now. Because I don't believe we have one calling. I think we have millions of callings, little ones and big ones. We have callings every day. So the question isn't what do I do with my life, it's what do I do next. So what's bugging you? What doesn't seem right that's happening around you right now? Or conversely, what's got you really inspired? Because excellent activism involves building what's right and not just opposing what's wrong. And then ask yourself what it is that you bring. And then ask yourself, where's your community? Where are the people who already care about what you care about? And then pick one thing to do, something achievable, and go ahead and do it. And then go back and rinse and repeat. That's the way to world changing. A lot more information about it in World Changing 101. David, as I said, we're going out right now with your song. You may do that. Thank you so much for your writing, your changing, your introspection, your sharing that with the world, with your extraspection. It's really inspirational to all of us. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, I'm honored to be in the movement with you and standing in the circle next to you, Mark. Thanks for the work you're doing and for your hospitality here. And as we go out with You May Do That by David Lamott, I also want to mention that I deeply appreciate the aid of Catherine Thomas in production assistance on today's program. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Here's You May Do That by David Lamott. You may never even notice what you're doing You may think until you cannot move at all you may make your lists until you're out of paper You may roll the window down and let them fall You may do that
theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.